Let me pray for us. Oh Lord God, your word is precious. And God, I ask that you be with me as I preach your word because it is a daunting task to handle it rightly, but also for it to benefit your people. So God, I pray that the words in my mouth might actually edify the congregation here and may it be uplifting to their soul. But God, may it also make much of you in Jesus Christ. God, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I will be preaching on Zephaniah tonight. And as a summary to the whole book, God will bring an end to your sin by either destroying you or sanctifying you. God will bring an end to your sin by either destroying you or sanctifying you. And we can see this in three parts of the book. Chapter 1 and 2 in part of chapter 3 talks about the nations judged by God. And then part of chapter 3 is the nations are saved by God. And the last couple of verses are the nations rejoice with God. God will bring an end to your sin either by destroying you or sanctifying you. From the background information, Zephaniah is the great-great-grandson of King Hezekiah, which was one of the great kings that was probably one of the best in the nation of Judah. He helped reform Judah, got rid of a lot of the idolatry, the Baal worship, and reinstated the priesthood. And after a few generations, Judah falls back into sin. And God once again is kind to his people by sending a prophet to warn them before it's too late. So in chapter 1, it begins with another judgment. But this one isn't just a judgment to the nation of Judah. It actually begins with a judgment to the whole world. Chapter 1, verse 2. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rumble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. This language should remind us of Genesis. But it should remind us of Genesis in terms of God created, and now he's, in one sense, decreating. He is destroying mankind, animals, fish, and the birds. This is talking about a judgment that will come and wipe out everything, and he will cut off man from the face of the earth. But it makes an interesting transition. It only spends two verses talking about judgment of the whole world, and then it quickly changes to Judah. And at the end of chapter 1, it will once again pick up global judgment. And so the structure of chapter 1 is judgment of the nations, judgment of Judah, and then judgment of the nations again. So once God finishes warning the whole world, he specifically focuses in on Judah. Verse 4, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Judah, and I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal and the name of all the idolatrous priests along with the priest. Those who bow down on the roof to the host of heaven, those who bow down and swear to the Lord, yet swear by Milcon, and those who have turned back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. Judah is singled out for three sins in particular, all dealing with their religion or lack thereof. The first one is their idolatry. This is in verse 4. God will cut off the Baal worships. Then it's talking about he will cut off syncretism, which is a mixing of two religions. And this happens in verse 5, 
when he says that those who bow down and swear to the Lord, yet also swear by Milcon. And then the third one is religious indifference. Those who have turned back from following the Lord, but who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. So Judah is faulted for three things, idolatry, syncretism, and religious indifference. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, it says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. What do you desire more than God? That's what idolatry is. Is when you are coveting something more than God. Is when you have evil desires, when you are putting things above God. And this is exactly what the nation of Israel did. They would always put a different God above the true God. But let us not forget that we do the same things. Just because it isn't a wooden statue that we carved ourselves or a metal image does not mean that we are guiltless in terms of idolatry because we too covet stuff above the Lord Jesus Christ. We desire to put them on a, these things on a pedestal. Some of these things are good things. They can be a spouse. They can be work. Our kids are hobbies. Anything that we desire more or we covet more is idolatry. The nation of Israel repeatedly fell into idolatry of other gods. Their issue was they looked at the other nations that they thought were being blessed where the other nations had good things happening at the time, and so they would worship those gods. It happened with the Assyrians. At one point, they completely changed the worship of Yahweh, and they brought in the Assyrian gods because they thought the Assyrian gods would provide them more protection and more blessing than the true God. And we are guilty of the same thing. We look at the things of the world and we find comfort in other things. We look at them and say, this will please me and bring me more satisfaction than the Lord Jesus Christ will. And so we idolatrize it. We look for comfort in what these things can give us. And that's what the Israelites did. They looked towards foreign gods to comfort them and to bring them peace and to bring blessing. But we can do the very same thing with a spouse, work, kids or hobbies. We can look towards that thing or that person and think this person will bring me blessing. This, p- this person will bring me happiness. And in one sense that is true. It will bring some satisfaction, but it will not bring the everlasting satisfaction that only God can bring. So when we are coveting, it is putting something above God. The greatest thing that we can have is God himself. And when we try substituting something, it's idolatry. Israel was judged for that. Syncretism. That is when you mix two different religions. And so what ended up happening in Israel they actually started doing some child sacrifice, which is what the god Moloch would do, often practiced by the Moabites and the Amorites. They would sacrifice their kid, thinking that it would bring some kind of momentary blessing. And they would mix it with worship of God. So oftentimes, this would look like them using the temple of the Lord and saying, we're worshiping the Lord but we're just following the religious practices of the Moabites. So we're still worshiping God. We're in his temple. We're, we're just doing something slightly different. Not the way that God prescribed. Syncretism is when you mix two different religions. 
Another biblical example is the Samaritans. After the Syrians destroyed the northern tribe, different people groups came in and lived in the northern tribe, and they started mixing religions. And Gentiles and Jewish people intermarried. The pure line of God's people got corrupted, but with that came idolatry, and they started to worship these other gods. Solomon was known for this too. He married a lot of foreign women and started worshiping their God, but he started to mix the religions. He still had the temple of the Lord. He was still worshiping in that, but he was not worshiping God rightly. He was mixing in other religious practices. So what does that look like for us nowadays? We oftentimes see this in the New Age movement. And this is a group of people that oftentimes have some clear signs of how they talk. They'll say that, I'm a religious person. I have my own relationship with God. I worship God in my own house. I do it my own way. And these ideas have slowly crept into the church. And these ideas are ones that we start practicing, such as saying we're religious but not spiritual. And we start using these cliches without actually thinking what they mean. And people will start denying that church is important. They'll start denying that fellowship is important. It's my own religion. I do it my own way. And they start losing focus to what God has actually prescribed. God has given us the church as a blessing. And if we love God, we will love God's people. But the New Age movement will say, I can do it on my own. I can be spiritual without other people. And it starts getting into Christians' mindsets. So we start hearing the quote-unquote wisdom of the world, and we start adapting it. We just start throwing Christian vocabulary at it. They make it sound more biblical, Christianese. And we try to make it sound biblical, But when we start evaluating the actual way we do stuff, sometimes we realize they're not even biblical. They don't honor the Lord. Like modernism, where people say, it's my truth, I just do it my way. There's your truth, there's my truth. And these ideas start infiltrating the church and we start falling prey to them. And that's the example of syncretism where other ideas slowly creep in to our thinking. And before long, we don't even realize that we're in false doctrine. We have bought into false teaching just one step at a time. If we hear a certain phrase over and over, we interpret it with some Christian ideas when the foundation isn't even biblical. And if you try mixing something where the foundation is off, you're never going to get to the correct place. So syncretism. Mixing two religions together. Worshiping God, but also having other practice. That was the second issue of the Israelites. The third one was religious indifference. Those who have turned back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire. They're indifferent. They don't care. The Israelites oftentimes just said, "Mm, God isn't going to do anything. God would send prophets to them. They would listen to the prophets speak, and they would just say, no, God isn't going to do that. We don't believe you. They would be indifferent to the warnings that God would give. They would hear the word of the Lord, and it would make no impact on their life. This is kind of like what James talks about. He says, if you look in the mirror and you don't make a change, what good is it? What good is hearing a message saying that it's great, but there being no difference in your life afterwards? We're in the same sin of religious indifference. We can come to church week after week, 
listen to the sermon, worship God, say that is a wonderful sermon, but it never impact our lives. If you're not continue to grow in your sanctification, your love of the wor- word, you may be in the sin. You may be indifferent. You should be able to look back at your life years back, a few years, and see growth, a steady growth. Sure, we will have moments of sin and defeat. But the Christian walk should be a continual aspect that we are growing in our sanctification. When religious indifference sets in our lives, we become stagnant. But it's not like we stay in one place. It's almost like an escalator. The Christian life is almost like going up the down escalator. You must continue to take step after step up while it's coming down. For if you stop at a moment, you're just going to go all the way down to the bottom. Religious indifference will stunt someone's life, but also cause them to fall into sin because they're not continually fighting the good fight. They're not continuing to striving for excellence. And so they give into mediocrity. And it just keeps going downhill from there. The Israelites said they worship God, but they were just indifferent to his warnings and his message. So God gives a warning to the people of their sins of religion. And then he tells of the day that they will be judged. Verse 7 says, Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. This phrase, day of the Lord, is used commonly throughout the Old Testament. In some instances, it refers to the final day of judgment, where God will judge every human being, and we'll either go to heaven or hell. But more often, the day of the Lord refers to a specific day in history when a certain nation will be judged. For example, the day of the Lord will come upon the northern tribe of Israel and they will be destroyed by the Assyrians. That was the day of the Lord for the northern tribe. It was the day that God visits them and judges them. The Assyrians had a day of the Lord where God visited them and judge them. And here is referring to there will be a day for you, Judah, that God will judge you and hold you accountable. So that's what the day of the Lord is referring to. And it goes on to say, the Lord hath pre- prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guest and on the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officers and let the king's son and all who arrange themselves in foreign attire. On that day, I will punish everyone who leaps over the threshold and those who fill their master's house with violence and fraud. On that day, declares the Lord, a cry will be heard from the fish gate, a wail from the second quarter, a loud crash from the hills, a wail, O inhabitants of Mordor, and all the traitors are no more. All who weigh out their silver are cut out. And at the time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps, and I will punish the men who are complacent. Those who say in their, ha- in their hearts, the Lord will, do, will not do good, nor will he do ill. Their goods will be plundered, and their houses laid waste. Though they build houses, they will not inhabit them. And though they plant vineyards, they shall not drink wine for them. That's the point where the end of, of Judah's judgment comes. But let's break it down a little bit. It says that God will prepare a sacrifice. But this isn't the sacrifice where we think of a lamb. This is referring to God will prepare a sacrifice and it's the leaders of the nation, meaning he is going to bring his judgment and punish the leaders in Jerusalem. Why? It says in verse 9, On that day I will punish everyone who leaps over the household and those who fill their master's house with violence and 
fraud. It was common for them to use physical violence to intimidate and to get what they want. And this word violence also has the idea of harsh treatment. You can almost think of it like how a person treats a slave. They're ruthless. They're uncaring. They think they're above other people. And so they gain their wealth through violence and fraud. In some translations, it says deceit. And this deceit is by tricking somebody. It's essentially a lie. In Genesis, with Jacob and Esau, it mentions that Jacob deceived his brother for his birthright. He used deception to get what he, he wanted. And so the sin of the leaders is they will do whatever they can to earn a quick dollar. They will sell out their fellow brothers and sisters just to make a quick dollar. They would charge these huge amount of interest towards the poor people. This happened in the days of Nehemiah. When all the captives return back to Jerusalem, they're in this land, they're rebuilding the walls, the foundation of the temple. And it comes to a point where the poor people have to sell their land just to pay the taxes of the king. And so people in Israel would calmly take advantage of their brothers. You could think of this also like a payday loan where they charge these huge amount of interest just for a short period, just taking advantage of people because they know they're desperate and they don't care. They just want to make money. They don't care about the consequences that the other person has to deal with. They don't care that the person can't afford the interest. Their only concern is about them and their greed and they will use whatever tactics they can. And so what's God going to do? He's going to punish them where it hurts. It says that God will destroy their traitors. Verse 11 says, For all the traitors are no more. All who weigh out silver are cut off. God destroyed their idol. The very thing that they found important God took away from them. It was no more. They loved making money, using violence, deceit. So God says, no more. I'm going to destroy the temple, or I'm going to destroy the marketplace. And so when it says that a cry will be heard from the fish gate, a wail from the second quarter, a loud crash from the hills, a wail inhabitants of mortar, this is a reference to just the whole of the town. So the fish gate was in the northern part of the town, and then the second quarter was in the eastern part, and mortar was like a, almost like a main street that's running through the town. It would be the equivalent of me saying, from North Las Vegas to Summerlin to Henderson, there's going to be destruction. And you'd think in your head, north, east, south, West, like, okay, everything's going to be destroyed? And God's like, yes, there will be destruction. The marketplace is pointed out because that's what these people find important to them. In one sense, God's going to deal with their idols. He's going to say, no more, and deal with it. And not only that, it says that God is going to search out these people. At that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps, and I will punish them. And it goes on to say the next group of people are those who are complacent. Those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do evil. Is not that the issue that America is in nowadays? The world will try to say, God isn't going to bring judgment it's been thousands of years since the Bible, and his judgment hasn't come. People will oftentimes say, I don't believe in that. I'm indifferent. I just don't believe in it. Not believing in something 
doesn't solve the problem if it's still coming. If you say, I don't believe in the bus that's coming straight at me, you'll still get hit by the bus. And so the people are complacent and they don't believe anything's going to happen. It's what I mentioned earlier, where the prophets would come and warn the people and the prophet would say, God's going to come judge. And then they would make their own announcement. God isn't going to judge us. No, he's not. And they would try counteracting the words of the prophet. They don't want anything to happen. They just want their life to be as is. They're happy with their current life situation. They're happy with what's happening. And so they're indifferent. They've grown cold to the things of God. And God's answer to that is that he will take away their livelihood. It says that these people will build houses, plant a garden, a vineyard, but they're not going to be the ones living in it. It's a direct reference to what's going to happen with the Babylonians. The Babylonians are going to come, destroy the city, and then take captive the people. And someone else is going to live in their house. They're going to lose everything because they were complacent. They didn't care about the warnings to come. God gave them ample warnings. He's been sending prophets for centuries. And God warned them over and over, and the people have become complacent. And once and this is the kindness of God. God uses the hardships in our lives to wake us up. Sometimes it's only when we go through suffering that we then look up to God. God's way of dealing with complacency is by bringing suffering and disaster so that people will once again cry out to the Lord. This happened in the book of Judges over and over. The people would fall into sin. God would send another nation to judge them. And then all of a sudden the people started to cry out to the Lord. And that is the right response. When we go through suffering, that is the time that people would naturally call out to God. And so it's the wisdom of God with dealing with the people's sin in the way that it deserves the people who are complacent, they will go through great suffering so that God may wake them up. It's the kindness of God. So to sum up, there's sin. There's religious sin. They're into idolatry, syncretism, and religious indifference. The leaders, they're using violence and deception to earn money. And there's so many people in the town that are just indifferent to everything that's happened around them. And so God brings judgment on the nation. But remember in the early chapter I talked about how there was global judgment and then the judgment of Judah? Now we change back over to the judgment of the world. Verses 14 through 18. The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty men cries aloud there. A day of wrath is the day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and sick darkness, a day of triumph, blast and battle cries against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements and i will bring disaster on mankind so that they will they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against the lord their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung neither their silver nor their gold will be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of god in the fire of his jealousy all the earth will be consumed for a full and sudden end, he will make an end to all the inhabitants of the earth. 
Judah is only an example of what is to come. It is just a foreshadowing of the greater day of judgment when God will destroy all nations with fire. God will destroy towns completely and wipe them off the face of the earth. It is the final day of judgment. And so what are we supposed to learn from this? We are supposed to look at the judgment that comes upon Judah and realize that the same thing can happen to us here in America. It is a warning. Don't become complacent. Don't become idolatrous. Don't become religiously indifferent or into syncretism. God judged Jerusalem, and he will judge us too. And so it is a warning against all nations, but we should take this to heart here in America. And so what does God say that we should do in response to this? How should we respond to the wrath of God that is to come? Look at chapter 2. Gather together, yes, gather, O shameless nations, before the decree takes place, before the day passes like chaff, before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord, before there comes upon you the day of the anger of God. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do his just commands, who seek righteousness, seek humility, perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. Repent. What should you do? And it's giving you a strong warning. Before. Before the decree takes place. Before the day of the Lord. Before there comes upon you. Before there comes upon you. God says you need to do this before the anger of the Lord comes. You cannot wait until the final moments where you are standing before God about to give an account of your whole life, and then repent. It will be too late. You only live once, and then comes judgment, says Hebrews 9. You must repent before the day comes. There's no second chance. You must repent now. But there's an interesting thing that this verse says. It doesn't just say, stop doing these evil things. It also says to seek righteousness, seek humility. If you try saying, I've repented, but there is no righteousness in your life, there is no humility, there is rightful ground for us to not believe that your repentance is genuine. Repentance comes with righteousness, with humility. It is those people who look at the judgment on other nations and are rightfully in fear of the judgment that may come upon them, which I should say will come upon them, that they turn from their sin of idolatry and syncretism and religious indifference and greed and violence. And then they change. And then they seek righteousness. They seek humility. It is a change of the heart completely. In one sense, there is a small warning. Perhaps you may be hidden. And this is just in reference to nations being destroyed. There will be some in an unjust town that get swept away in the anger of the Lord. There were some in Israel that were righteous and yet the whole nation was still judged. But that doesn't change the fact that each one of us needs to seek righteousness in our own life. We could have this whole church completely change and live completely righteous lives, and God could still bring the judgment on America. But we have a greater hope in Jesus Christ, because our true sins are forgiven. And so this temporary judgment in this world, we don't fear it. But I'll come back to that in chapter 3. It gets hashed out a lot more with the coming of a king. After 
Judah's judgment comes the judgment of the nations. Chapter 2, verses 4 to the end of the chapter, verse 15, all talks about judgment of other nations. And for the sake of time, I'm only going to highlight a few key points. It calls upon judgment of the Philistines in verses 4 through 7. And it warns them, because of your sins, because of your pride, you will be destroyed and the nation of Judah will occupy your land. This happens when the Babylonian captivity ends and those people come back and they actually inhabit some of the Philistines' lands. Verses 8 through 11 are the judgment of the nations of the Moabites and the Amorites. And their sins are specifically taunts and reviling. Let me just read a few verses. Verse 8 of chapter 2. I have heard the taunts of Moab and the reviling of the Amorites, how they have taunted my people and have made boast against their territory. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Moabite, Moab shall be like Sodom and the Amorites like Gomorrah. Judgment shall come upon them because of their reviling. Now this reviling is the idea of mocking, making fun of. It actually uses the same idea in Exodus 21, where it says a child shall not speak back or revile their parents. It is an aggressive pushing back. It also talks about how Jesus was reviled, mocked at the cross. The people passing by, the guards, they mocked the Lord Jesus Christ in Mark 15. And this sin is so serious that in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, it says this, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexual immorale, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunken, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. Reviling is listed as a sin that will keep you out of the kingdom of God. You could also think about it with David and Goliath. Goliath was mocking the Lord God. And God gave David strength to um, behead him. When people revile you, they are actually reviling the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the Moabites would mock the Israelites. They would say, your God isn't strong. They're not all powerful. He's not going to act. And God said, just wait. There will be a day of punishment, and it will be like Sodom and Gomorrah. God will bring upon his judgment And where is their taunting leading them to? It's because of their sin. Verse 10. This shall be their lot in return for their pride because they have taunted and boast. The reason that they are taunting, boasting, reviling is because their pride in their heart. They think that they were better than the Israelites. They put themselves on a pedestal. And so God... Which is going to knock them off their pedestal. I'll come back around to that in just a moment. Verse 12 talks about the judgment that Egypt goes through. And verses 13 through 15 talks about the judgment of the Assyrians. So chapter 2 is the judgment of the nations. And chapter 3 brings all the judgment into almost a crescendo. Look at verse 3. Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled, the oppressing city. She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction, and she does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to God. 
Her officers within her are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves that leave nothing till the morning. Her prophets are fickle, treacherous men. Her priests profane what is holy, and they do violence to the law. The Lord within her is righteous, and he does no injustice. Every morning he shows forth his judgment, and each dawn he does not fail, but the unjust show no shame. I have cut off the nations. Their battlements are in ruin. I have laid waste to their streets so that no one will walk in them, and their cities will be made a desolation. Without a man, without inhabitants, I said, surely you will fear me and you will accept correction. Then your dwelling will be cut off according to all that I have appointed against you. But all the more they were eager to do all their corrupt deeds. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up and seek the prey. For my decision is to gather the nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out my wrath all my burning anger, for in fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. God is warning us through the judgment of other nations. The nations are judged by God. And what we should take away from this is that the nations are judged as a warning against us that God does not tolerate sin and there shall be a day of wrath that shall come upon us. God, in his anger against sin, will destroy. And we have the warnings of the Israelites, of the Philistines, the Moabites, the Amorites, the Egyptians, and the Assyrians. And I could continue to lift off, list off nation after nation. They were judged so that we may learn a lesson God does not tolerate sin, and he will bring judgment. So as chapter 2 said, repent before the day of the Lord, before the coming of his wrath. It will be a day where everything is consumed and his wrath is poured out. But there is good news. God judges the nations, but God also saves and redeems the nations. God punishes so that we learn, but God also uses that punishment to save people. Those who had humbled themselves, who seek righteousness and humility, God is going to bless them. Verse 9, God says, For at that time I will change the speech of the people to a pure speech, that all may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of crush, my worshipers, the daughters of my disposed one, they shall bring my offering. And on that day you shall not be put to shame because the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For I will remove from your midst your proudly exalted ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountains, but I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. God punishes the nations so that he may redeem the nations. He purifies them through suffering and pain, they are redeemed. But the fascinating thing is the sin that he mentions. So in chapter 2, it talked about the Moabites and their reviling and their pride. Those are the very things that God then redeems. Verse 9 says, For at that time I will change the speech of my people to a pure speech. The nations go from reviling God to taunting, to mocking to now building up, to encouraging. God takes the sin, sanctifies it, and then uses their very instrument of sin for his own glory. 
he changes their speech to what is now a pure speech. And he blesses them because if you notice, it kept saying, for at the time, I will, verse 9. And then in 11, it says, for then I will remove from your midst the proud. And then verse 12, I will leave in your midst the humble and the lowly. Who is the one doing this? It is God. God saves the nation. He takes their corrupting speech and he redeems it. How should we respond to this? All sudden, one day we're being judged, suffering to God redeeming us, to saving us, to taking our sin and sanctifying it. We must rejoice. Verse 14 says, Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult in your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgment against you. He has cleansed away your enemy. We rejoice that God has saved us. The nations are judged by God so that the nations may be redeemed by God, so that the nations may rejoice with God. Because God has changed our hearts, because he has taken away the judgment that we so rightfully deserve, there is nothing for us to do but to rejoice, to sing loud. Is this not what we do on Sundays? Do we not come here to worship the king of glory that has redeemed us from the pit of hell? We rejoice that we were not destroyed. And we marvel at the fact that it was God who was doing this all along. Verse 15 says, The king of Israel, the Lord is in your midst, and you shall never fear evil. This is referring to when Jesus Christ, born of a virgin, came to earth to live the perfect life and to die on the cross for our sin. The Lord has taken away the judgment against you and he has cleared away your enemies. There's no more sin in our lives because God has cleansed it we are no longer held responsible for our sin because Jesus Christ died on the cross for us. He took the wrath of God that we deserve and he saved us. So rejoice. But it keeps on going. On that day it shall be said in Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst. That's Jesus Christ. The Lord God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. What wonderful verses. Not only does it say that we will rejoice, but it also says that God will rejoice too. One of God is rejoicing because we are rejoicing. But then we just marvel all the more because God was doing it from the beginning. It keeps on saying, I will. It goes on in verse 18, says, I will gather those who mourn. Verse 19, for behold, I will deal with your oppressors and I will save the lame. And I will change their shame into praise. And at that time, I will bring in you. For I will make you renowned and praised among all the people of the earth. It is God who has been working in our lives from the moment that we were born. I should actually go farther. From the moment that the earth was created, God has always had the plan to redeem his people through the Lord Jesus Christ. If none of us, it says that God has given us a divine power for life and godliness. It says, by the grace of God, I am what I am, and by his grace towards me, he was not in vain. On the contrary, 
I worked harder than any of them. This is Paul who's saying this. But not I, but the grace of God that is within me. In 1 Thessalonians, it also says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and your body be kept blameless at the coming of the Lord. It's God that sanctifies us. It's God that redeemed us. And so we rejoice in the fact that this whole time, God has been working in the background from the foundations of the earth. God has always been planning his redemption of his people. And how did God do this? By bringing judgment upon the nations so that people may learn from the sins of others. God used pagan nations as an example so that people may repent. He used judgment so that people will turn. And then he sanctified us. He sanctified his people through suffering, through the judgment of the nations, so that the nations may be saved, and then the nations may rejoice in God. So praise God that he has redeemed his people and that we are sanctified and let us seek to live holy lives. Let me pray. Oh Lord God, how great is your grace. God, you have been planning this from the start. And God, we marvel at your wisdom. And God, we thank you that you have redeemed a sinful people. And God, I pray that we might then rejoice and live righteous and humble lives for your glory and for your honor. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.